Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us today on WOMR 92.1 FM, Provincetown WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. A long and committed marriage can be portrayed in many ways, but the truest might be an intimate struggle between two people whose emotional and psychological issues often come to a boiling point. A less honest portrayal might be a rom-com or a fairy tale or an epic romance, which is precisely the way marriages were long pictured in American movies and plays. Today we're talking about a play that blew the doors off our cultural expectations of how married life was represented, a drama whose use of language and psychological cruelty scandalized mainstream critics. At the same time, it intrigued audiences enough to secure it a two-year run on Broadway and a movie adaptation that was nominated for 13 Academy Awards, winning five. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf by Edward Albee was a cultural phenomenon from the moment its curtain rose. And the making of the film was not only a drama in itself, but helped usher in the era of new Hollywood, characterized by gritty storytelling and daring new directors. Talking with us via telephone today is award-winning author, producer, and critic Philip Gefter. We'll be discussing his new book, Cocktails with George and Martha, Movies, Marriage, and the Making of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Philip Gefter, thank you so much for talking with us today. Hi, Ira. Thank you for having me. So why Virginia Woolf? How'd you come to get fascinated by a 60-year-old play and its movie adaptation? Um, I always loved the movie. It was the first movie I ever saw. I was 15 when I saw it, um, in which I thought, this is the truth. And, and I, I mean, I didn't conceptually, I, I didn't say to myself, this is the truth. But at 15, I thought, this is something, there's something about life in this that I've never seen before that is some window onto the adult world um, that was, I thought, profound. And um, as I said, I was 15, I couldn't really understand that, but it stayed with me. And in fact, I recognized my parents' marriage in it and um, the marriage of the parents of my friends. And, you know, so it, it always, I don't know, it, 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 whenever I thought back over the years to movies I really liked and, and, and believed in, it's, it was always at the top of my list. So I, you know, had finished, I published a, a biography of Richard Avedon and I was kind of thinking, well, now what do I do? <laughs> what, what next? And, you know, when I, when I choose to write about something, it's, you know, it, I, I think, well, this has to occupy my attention um, for the next few years and like, and very few things I think are able to do that. Um, so I don't know, it just sort of came to me that, you know, I would really love to explore this. This is about marriage. Marriage is one of the largest, um, you know, conditions I think in, 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 in culture, in our culture, in culture. And, um, you know, I'm married. It's sort of, so it was a way of examining, marriage it was a way not well that's one thing it was a way of examining marriage through this film and it's also a way of exploring the nature of art making because i do think the film is a masterpiece so what can you tell us about edward albee and how the play emerged from his experience right so edward albee um was living in greenwich village trying to become a writer um and 
he lived in a kind of bohemian circle of, of artists and writers uh, in, you know, bohemian New York in the 50s. And um, he had written out of nowhere, according to his lover at the time, he wrote um, The Zoo Story. And it was an instant success. And he became very quickly kind of one of the fathers of the theater of the absurd. Um, when he started writing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, um, you know, it, it turned into a three-act play. He hadn't anticipated that. Uh, and, um, you know, somehow, I don't know, um, it just, it it got to Broadway. <laughs> it became a phenomenon. Um, I mean, there are a lot of things to say about Edward Alvey. I, I don't quite know how to approach it. Um, but I will say this, um, that one of one of the 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 highlights of my research was the discovery of this couple who all be new, Willard Mass and Marie Mankin. Um, and I was able to identify them as a source of George and Martha in Edward Albee's wild imagination. And that that is significant to me because um, Willard and Marie, Andy Warhol called them the last of the great bohemians. Um, Willard was a poet. Marie was an experimental filmmaker. They would throw these these wild parties. I mean, and they they were in the center of overlapping circles of the zeitgeist, the New York poets and artists and writers. So they would throw these wild parties, and they were known to um, get really drunk and argue with each other in front of the guests. Well, George and Martha, <laughs> you know, um, I think one of the most interesting things to me about discovering Willard and Marie is that um, somehow. Albie imbued George and Martha with the burden of carrying the values of that era, that gestalt, that, you know, that, that, that world that Albie sort of came out of. And um, I don't know that, I don't know how to finish that thought without going into like a long discourse about what those values are. But, but um, anyway, I think that, um, I don't know. I think that's what I have to say about so about a lot. There was a lot of speculation for a time that George and Martha couldn't actually be a heterosexual couple, and that um, they were sort of based on George and Martha and Nick and Honey were sort of based on a gay couple. Where did that come from? Right. Well, it's true. I mean, for years people were saying that it's actually two gay couples. Um, uh, well, I think that had its, I mean, first of all, yes, Albie was gay. Yes, Albie had a boyfriend. Yes, they argued. Um, there's no question. Um, but Albie did not write it as as a gay play. It was, it was never his intention. Uh, it was more of an examination of, um, well, not Willard and Marie per se, directly, but um, it was really a heterosexual couple. It was It was more about this couple not, being able to have a child, um, and 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 that goes back to Albie himself. Albie was adopted, and I talk about this in the book kind of extensively at, at one point that that um, George and Martha have an imaginary child because they couldn't have children, and the imaginary child becomes a metaphor for their very kind of their love for each other. You know, just their secret, their love, um, and when the child. Is exposed over you know this this long evening. Um, um, the, the the secret comes out, and um, it turns out the child is imaginary, 
you know, that that's kind of an, an, an essence of the play. So to go back to this question of, of them being two gay couples, that I think the genesis of that came from um, a kind of wave of homophobia in the mid 60s that started manifesting in um, it, with critics writing about gay the, theater. And it turns out that, you know, the fathers of, of, of theater at that time, well, were Tennessee Williams, uh, William Inge, uh, you know, Edward Albee, and they were all gay. And so they, they, critics just turned on them and they sort of, out of, out of fantasies, they created, you know, these, these, um, this kind of observation of who's a friend of Virginia Woolf is a gay play. He always denied that and denounced it. And he never, ever let a production of the play be done with two gay mm -hmm. It was originally assumed that George and Martha would be played by Betty Davis and James Mason in the movie. Yes. And in my mind's eye, I can actually see that. So, so, yes. so how, what did, happened? <laughs> how did the parts <laughs> go to Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton? Right. Exactly. So it's funny when, when Albie sold the rights to Jack Warner, um, he, there was a kind of gentleman's agreement. Jack Warner said, yes, I will. You know, we will make sure that Betty Davis and James Mason play uh, George and Martha. And, and Albie used to quip, yeah, I'm sure they're just going to, I'm sure they're going to cast Walk Hudson and Doris Day. <laughs> and, um, you know, and when you think about Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, that's not far off. Um, it came from Ernest Lehman, who's the producer of Music and Virginia Woolf. He was producer and screenwriter. Um, it was his idea to cast Martha uh, to cast uh, Taylor as Martha. And um, he just thought, I guess one one thing he thought is, is the Sandpiper was just coming out, or maybe there was another movie before that. Um, you know, Liz, Liz and Dick, their relationship became a scandal. So when they, they met, just to go back several years before casting Liz and Virginia Woolf, um, they met on the set of Cleopatra. They were both married to other people. They just they started an affair that, that was so overt and it became scandalous and paparazzi followed them around and they were, you know, on the front page of, of newspapers all over the world for a year, you know, as either intermittently Liz and Dick or the scandal. Um, and they became, you know, the, the chicest couple in the world and the most famous couple in the world. So I think it, it. I think you know Ernest Lehman was aware of that and thought, like, who but Liz and Dick? Although I have to say, it was, it was he wanted to cast Elizabeth Taylor. He had not gotten as far as Richard Burton yet, and it was because of Elizabeth Taylor that Burton was cast. Um, he felt that she could bring something that she had somewhere deep within her, some essence of, you know, his understanding of Martha, and it turns out he was right. I think. I mean, I think that she, you know, really is is a remarkable Martha. And, and whenever I think of Martha, of course, I think of Elizabeth Taylor. Um, if you're just people, joining us, let me tell people who we are. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR. Today we're talking about one of the most scandalous and iconic movies ever made about marriage. My guest is award-winning author, critic, and producer Philip Gefter. We're discussing his new book, Cocktails with George and Martha, Movies, Marriage, and the Making of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Philip, Mike Nichols was a pretty brazen choice for director, wasn't he? I mean, he was celebrated yes. theater director and... 
and half of a well-known comic duo, but he had never even directed a film. So how was he chosen? Right. So he was chosen because he was good friends with um, Richard Burton and then Liz. Um, he got to know Liz. And it, it basically, he when he learned that she was going to be cast as Martha, he contacted her agent and he said, I want to direct this movie. And Elizabeth Taylor, and they both, um, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor loved Mike. Mike Mike was the, the kind of, I mean, he was really a daunting human being, even at the age of 30. Three, he was 33 when when he was um, hired to direct the film. Um, he he was just smarter, whip smart, um, really funny, um, knew everything, read widely, and so they believed in him. And they thought when he, when he said to Elizabeth Taylor, "I I want to direct it," he had already directed three Broadway plays and one one or two um, Tonys by that point. So he was he was a known figure. I mean, he wasn't it wasn't just some wild and wacky idea that this guy is going to direct it. Elizabeth Taylor felt comfortable with him. They were friends. And so she put him up for director. She said, I, I want Mike Nichols to direct this play uh, movie. And because she was Elizabeth Taylor and had the cachet she had, um, because she had the fame she had, uh, they they agreed. Um Warner Brothers agreed. So that's how he came to direct it. Um, when Elizabeth Taylor was also cast, she also said, I I will only do it if Richard, my husband, will play George. Um, and so what she was doing was surrounding herself with people she felt comfortable with, who also happened to be enormously talented. Yes. So it all worked out quite well. One of the joys of the book for me is the almost childish one-upmanship between the producer, Ernest Lehman, and the director, Mike Nichols. They were they were kind of like brothers competing for credit, for attention, for power. What was that all about? It's hilarious. Um, you know, it was sort of like, you know, this act of vaudeville, psychological vaudeville being played out between them. You know, th- that's always an issue. It's sort of a condition um, of, of you know, the power between a producer and a director in any film. You know, the director, you know, has a vision and the producer helps carry that out. The producer also holds the purse strings. So where the power falls at any given moment shifts all the time. Well, these were two very talented, very neurotic people. Um, Lehman was 15 years older than um, Mike Nichols. Mike Nichols had a kind of certainty about everything. I mean, even though he he would he would feign self-doubt constantly, he was pretty sure about what he was doing. I mean, even though he would, you know, he he might emotionally panic, he was always he always had a kind of artist's vision and set of standards. And so he and he was unflappable about it. So he would bring that to, you know, any discussion. He had this um confidence and Ernest Lehman who just had seniority. I mean, he had experience. He'd, he'd written several award-winning movies and um, and he was a known quantity in, in Hollywood. And this brash young New Yorker comes along. And so they're competing all the time for um, you know attention, for power, um, for prestige, whatever. And it gets played out in really hilarious ways. Um, I mean, it's, 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 yeah. I mean, I think that I like that part of the book where you see them you know, playing each other 
Um, well, Mike, but, Mike was so mean to him. Mike would do do things like tell him who he had dinner with the night before because he was yes because he was all because Mike was on everybody's social list. I mean, he yeah. the the portrait that you portray mm-hmm. of Mike Nichols, who he was this he was an immigrant who didn't speak English when he arrived here. His parents were middle class. He dropped out of college. Richard Avedon had to teach him to act like he had money. Um, right. He was just an amazing figure. So one thing I want to ask is, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was shot in black and white, which was yes. pretty... I mean, I couldn't figure out another movie, maybe besides Georgie Girl, that was shot in black and white yeah, in 1966. Right. Why was he adamant about shooting it in black and white and, and fighting with the most powerful man in Hollywood about it, Jack Warner? Right. He uh, Well, I have a, this great quote of, by him. It says, here's the thing about black and white, Nichols said. It's not literal. It's a metaphor. Automatically. And that's the point. A movie is a metaphor. If it's in black and white, the film is already saying, no, this is not life. This is something about life. And to me, I mean, I think that's a very keen, simple and profound observation. Um, this is, and this is part of what I mean about art making. It's, it's what, what I was partly, part of what I was investigating in the, in the book is, you know, he, he brought that observation and, and that standard to what he was doing. So at the at that moment in time, films became you know they were they were shot in color and that just was the trend and the resistance to shooting *Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf* in black and white came more from the marketing department of Warner Brothers even than from Jack Warner himself and Jack would use that as as an explanation like he would say. I'm with you, Mike. I mean, I agree it should be in black and white, but the marketing people say it's got to be in color, so we have to go with that. And Mike would have none of it. And the thing about, you know, what you were saying before about his brashness, you know, here's a guy, he was 33 years old. He came from New York um, to Hollywood. His friends were Leonard Bernstein, Stephen Sondheim, Richard Avedon, Susan Sontag, with whom he went to college at the University of Chicago, even though he didn't graduate. His standards already were here were people at the top of their, at the top of our culture, at the top of their form. The the level of the quality that Mike brought naturally to what he was doing, just by nature of his environment, the world he lived in, um, you know, was is was impressive. And so he could he could go to Jack Warner. I, I talk about this as, you know, it was kind of a David and Goliath relationship. I mean, Mike gets to Hollywood. He's 33. He's he's this individual fighting, you know, a, a studio, you know, an entire industry, um, a studio machinery, and he takes it on. And he walks into Jack Warner's office, you know, this first-time director who should be, you know, cowered by this studio head, and and he says, "Look, you know, if you don't want to shoot this in black and white." It's fine. I'll go back to New York. I don't care. I don't need this movie. <laughs> and so, of course, he held power at every turn, you know. Um, and he was using. I mean, he was intelligent. That wasn't just you know cavalier. He knew. He he had a kind of Machiavellian sense of things. So he understood what he was doing at the same. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about one of the most scandalous and well-known movies ever made about marriage. My guest is award-winning author, critic, and producer Philip Gefter. We're discussing his new book, Cocktails with George and Martha, Movies, Marriage, and the Making of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Philip, both director 
Nichols and producer Lehman were actually worried about the most beautiful actress in the world being able to play a frumpy middle-aged faculty wife. How in the world did Elizabeth Taylor meet the challenge? Well, this again, I go back to Mike Nichols. Um, you know, she she was the most beautiful woman in the world. She was she had a voice that was really wisty and high. She had never rehearsed before. She had made 30-something films. Um, she, as she told Mike the first day of rehearsal for music, Virginia she says, you know, I've never rehearsed before. I've never read the entire screenplay. Um, I've always been given my lines just before the scene. And that, that, to me, was an amazing revelation about Hollywood at the time. But so Mike had to literally pull out of her. He had to season her. He had to, she had to drop her voice two octaves to kind of to hit the register of a woman 20 years older. She had to gain 20 pounds. Um, and he literally coaxed her at every turn to, to, to make her reach into herself to play a woman who's literally 20 years older. Um, and by the same token, Mike had to do that to season her. He also had to temper Richard Burton. Richard Burton had a kind of um, dramatic ferocity, both on stage and on the screen, you know, and, and he's playing George and George is a kind of milk toasty, you know, failed writer. You know, he's a teacher, he's a, he's a, he's a professor, assistant professor, as Martha continues to remind <laughs> us throughout the movie, um, you know, um, and he's, he's, he's really kind of, his, you know, he's been broken and, for Richard Burton to play a character like that, you know, he really had to temper at every turn, be tamped down. So Mike, on the one hand, was was seasoning, you know, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, and on the other hand, tamping down George. And it was about an odd and interesting balancing act. There's one um, quote, another quote by Mike Nichols I, I love. On the eve of the Burton's arrival in Hollywood to start rehearsal, he he called Mike called um, Ernest Lane fretting he had he had just listened to the um broadway production of who's of virginia wolf again and Uta hagen who played martha brilliantly but he was fretting he said i don't know how elizabeth is going to do this i mean to to ask elizabeth taylor to play martha is like asking a chocolate milkshake to do the work of a dimple martini <laughs> <laughs> so so the movie was going to have all kinds of trouble with the censors, especially with the infamous Catholic Legion of Decency. But Mike Nichols had a plan for that, which included another, probably the only woman in the world who was more famous than Elizabeth Taylor, and that was Jacqueline Kennedy. Can you tell us that story? Yes. So I want to back up slightly to get to that story. Just to go back to Ernest Lehman and and Mike Nichols for one moment. Mike Ernest Lehman wrote a screenplay with six versions of a screenplay that so kind of elaborated on Albie's essential dialogue. So Mike had to strip the screenplay back to its original, the original language, the original Albie language, which is incendiary. I mean, at times, you know, they had to like, it's almost as if they were um, dealing a deck of cards. You know, Mike says, all right, I'll give you one goddamn, but you have to give me one, you know, I don't know what. You screw know, you. you. We'll say screw and, you, yeah, right? Exactly. Screw <laughs> you, right? And, um, and um, you know, so he basically um, 
I think that Mike castrated Ernest Lindemann in a way by by stripping away his his screenplay back to to Albee's original. This is relevant to your question because you know so Albee's original dialogue is incendiary. I mean, it, it would not pass the the censors, you know, and um, the, um, and so Jack Warner was constantly constantly fretting and going back to Mike and Ernie saying, you know, we can't we can't film this, you have to change the language. And, and Mike would stand up to him and say, no, we're not doing that. You know, and he said, but the censors, the censors. Finally, they, I mean, they sort of agreed that they're, they're just gonna like, you know, fingers crossed, you know, work with what they had. And um, so a week, I don't know, maybe a month or so before they had to show the censors the finished film, Jack Warner fired Mike because Mike Mike had done something else that was just kind of audacious, and he fired he fired um, Alex North, who who was the composer to the film, kind of at the last minute. And so they fired, you know, Jack Warner fired. Okay, so and, and Mike said, "Look, look, I need another week. We're finishing the editing. Let me just work with the editor." And Jack Warner didn't want to do it. He says, "I'll tell you what. If you let me do this, I will bring my friend Jacqueline Kennedy to the screening." you know, for the, the Catholic committee, whatever it's called. And um, and I assure you, she will say, she loved the play. She will say at the end of the movie, Jack would have loved this. Jack meaning President John F. Kennedy, the assassinated President John F. Kennedy. And, um, you know, which would have automatically ordained the movie because the Kennedys were Catholic. Um, so Jack Warner thought, oh, okay. So he let, he let Mike finish editing. And in fact, Mrs. Kennedy did come to that screening and she did say that very thing and she changed minds of the censors, the Monsignor and, you know, the Catholic committee. And the way you describe so, it in the book, she was like, she made, she said that Jack would have loved this to Mike within earshot of like Bishop yes, Sheen or yes, whoever it was. Yes. And that was completely orchestrated. That was, that was, you know, it's almost as if Mike directed that moment. Um, he was a smart guy, and he also knew everybody. <laughs> you you mentioned the music, and I just want to say that um, while I was reading your book, I went back and I streamed the movie, which I hadn't seen for years, and I was absolutely charmed by the movie, especially at the end where there was this kind of soft, comforting, folky melody i get i don't know what it, maybe it was played on just a guitar and it and and it was after all these fireworks and that it was just so effective what was going on there uh you know i i in in retrospect disagree with mike completely i think alex north's music is what enabled the movie to have um to kind of reach and mainstream american audiences it's a very it's soothing music, but it's also incredibly simple. It's like it's almost like folk music, which was in fact, you know, it was you know there was folk music and the rock was just just beginning, not even quite beginning in 1966. And the folk music was kind of you know um, it was it was music on campus, and so he used a single. It's almost like a single you know guitar string. It was such simple modernist music, but but it, it it borders on it borders on but does not drop into sentimental. Um, 
And so it is, it's, it's, it's sort of lulling in a way it's, it, it's almost suburban, <laughs> but, um, but you can, you can, you can imagine it being played in, in coffee shops at that time, coffee shops, which, which were, um, you know, cafes. Uh, so yeah, I love the music. I, I think it works really well. Um, Mike I think- wanted on. Yeah, I, I know that he wanted Andre Previn, and I'm very sorry we're going to have to end the interview right there. It, it's an it's an absolutely marvelous book. It's a marvelous book about theater. It's a marvelous book for me, especially about New York in the in the uh, late '50s, early '60s. It's just just a, a wonderful thing that you've given us. My guest today has Thank been. You so much. Philip Gifter. I want to thank Matty Dunn for his tech work on the show. Cocktails with George and Martha has just been published by Bloomsbury Publishing. And whoever you're, uh, whoever figured this out to, I know that it was supposed to come out in time for Oscar season because it's about a movie, but it's it's really coming out on Valentine's Day, which is <laughs> which is an absolute genius idea. <laughs> this is Ira Wood with the Lowdown in America's most notorious and honest movie one interview at a time bye for now 